It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In the early hours of the morning in northern China, a young woman rides with all haste. The steed she is riding is stolen, as is the sword strapped to her side and the armour that she is wearing. Against the wishes of her family, and against the laws of the kingdom, she is on her way to war, to fight invaders of her homeland. She doesn't know what will face her when she reaches the army, but she knows that she must lie every minute of every day to survive. Little did she know that this act of love and defiance would echo down the ages, with her becoming the most recognised heroine in Chinese folklore. Hello, and welcome to The Other Half. Episode 3.5, Hua Mulan, as useful as a son. Last time, we went over to Vietnam and told the story of their great folk heroine, Trung Truc, who, along with her sister, defied the mighty Chinese empire and, for a moment at least, united Vietnam under her rule. Today, we will travel forward in time about 300 years and move over to the great colossus of the East, China, to tell the story of its most famous heroine. This episode marks a bit of a first for your humble podcaster. While the stories of Boudicca and Trung Truc have been embellished and changed over the years, there is little doubt that they were real historical characters. Today, we're stepping even further into the mists of myth and legend, tell the story of a woman who is probably no more real than Robin Hood or Beowulf. But while the facts of her story are not really what one might comfortably call proper history, everything else about it is important. As I've said in the introduction to this series, what we're interested in here is the circumstances in which these stories came about and how they have changed over time. What this will be then is an examination of the myths and legends of Hua Mulan. If all you're interested in is real stories of real people, then I guess you'll need to give this the skip. 
This will also not be a review of the two Disney films, though of course we will be talking about them later on. But, having said that, I do urge you all to stick around, because, as usual, the basis of the myths are more intriguing than the stories that we have been told centuries later. But before we get into that, I want to thank all of my Patreon supporters who keep the show going. I'd particularly like to thank listeners Irina and Diane, who have become patrons since the last show. If you too want to support the podcast, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash the other half podcast. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. China has one of the richest histories of any nation on this planet, going back thousands and thousands of years. As one might expect, it is rich with legend and stories of heroic deeds of great men, but also great women. There is Men Chang, whose tears and anguish at the death of her husband apparently levelled the Great Wall of China. There is White Snake, a spirit infatuated with a male scholar who took human female form to pursue him. For her vainglory, she was punished with eternal imprisonment in the delightfully named Thunder Peak Pagoda. And then there is Zhu Yingtai, whose star-crossed love for Liang Shanbo resulted in their deaths, only for them to be resurrected as immortal butterflies so they could be together forever. Yet... While those stories are well known in China, they pale in international recognition to the story of Hua Mulan. There are a few reasons why I've chosen Mulan as China's representative in this series. The first, and simplest, is that you've almost certainly heard of her, and I'm sure are eager to know something about her story beyond the Disney princess. The second is that those three stories, and many others in Chinese folklore, are infused with magic and divine intervention. Despite what the most recent Disney adaptation would have you believe, though, there is none of this in the original text about Mulan. At its heart, her story is straightforward. She is transformed into a heroine not by supernatural powers, but by the simple act of changing clothes. Like any of these stories, there have been multiple versions of it over the years, but the basic facts pretty much all remain the same. A sick and elderly father is called to war against northern invaders. His family knows he will die if he does, but there is no alternative as he has only daughters who are barred from serving in the army, or, in some versions, a son who is far too young to fight. His eldest daughter, Mulan, takes his place, donning male clothes, taking armour and weapons, and heading off to the battlefield. For many years she serves with distinction, hiding her identity and preserving her virtue. In the end, she leads an army into battle, defeats the invaders, is lauded by the emperor for her efforts, and is offered great riches, but asks only to be allowed to return home to her family. When she gets back, she redresses in female garb and returns to her old life as if nothing had happened. 
Pretty much every story of Mulan follows this basic formula. But they add bits and pieces and choose different things to emphasise depending on the needs of the story. Some push loyalty to family. Others choose patriotism, romance, or even feminism and social empowerment. This versatility is the secret of the story's longevity, and the reasons why it has survived for nearly 2,000 years. But before we look into the stories themselves, it's worth doing a little bit of background. The story of Mulan takes place during what is known as the Northern Way period, which dates to around 386 to 533 CE. Over the century and a half expanse, China was split into two empires of broadly equal size, the Northern Wei and the Southern Qi. The Northern Wei was ruled from several capitals over its history, most notably Pincheng and Liaoliang, and shared a northern border with the Raoran Khaganate. The Raorans were the latest in a long line of nomadic raiding civilizations based in modern Mongolia, and numerous sections of the Great Wall of China were constructed to defend the Northern Way from the Raorans. Now, some might not consider the Northern Way to be really Chinese. They were certainly not Han Chinese, by far the most dominant ethnic group in modern China. Instead, they were Tuoba, descendants of a nomadic people who originally emerged from Mongolia. Indeed, Ethnically, they had far more in common with the Raoran Khaganate than the Han Chinese of the Southern Qi. Anyway, this is not an anthropological podcast, so I won't delve into this too deeply, but it will become important later on. Throughout the 5th century CE, the Northern Wei and Raoran Khaganate fought a number of wars, which largely saw the Raorans pushed back. This period of almost perpetual conflict is where the story of Mulan is set. These stories would have started in the oral tradition, but the first time they have appeared in the surviving written record is in the collected works of the Music Bureau, an anthology written in the 12th century and possibly has the most boring name of any volume originating such an important tale. In it are two poems that are of interest to us. The first is called The Poem of Mulan, which is undated and contains no authorial attribution. The second is an imitation of the poem called The Song of Mulan, and is attributed to an 8th century writer called Wei Yang Fu, but was originally drawn from a now lost 6th century text with an even more boring name, Musical Records Old and New. This would suggest that the poem probably came before the song, but that's only guesswork. Now, neither of them are very long, so I will just read them to you in full and then look at what they are telling us. For the record, these are taken from translations by Wilt I. Edema. First, let's look at the unauthored poem of Mulan. A sigh, a sigh, and then again a sigh. Mulan was sitting at the door and weaving. One did not hear the sound of loom and shuttle. One only heard her heave these heavy sighs. When she was asked the object of her love, when she was asked who occupied her thoughts, she did not have a man she was in love with. There was no boy who occupied her thoughts. Last night I saw the summons from the army. The Khan is mobilising all his troops. The list of summoned men comes in twelve copies. Every copy lists my father's name. 
My father has, alas, no grown-up son, and I, Mulan, have no adult brother. I want to buy a saddle and a horse to take my father's place and join the army. The Eastern Market. There she bought a horse. The Western Market. There she bought a saddle. The Southern Market. There she bought a bridle. The Northern Market. There she bought a whip. At dawn, she said goodbye to her dear parents. At night, she rested by the Yellow River. She did not hear her parents' voices calling for their daughter. She only heard the Yellow River's flowing water, always splashing, splashing. At dawn, she left the Yellow River's bank. At night, she rested on Black Mountain's top. She did not hear her parents' voices calling for their daughter. She only heard the whinnying of the Crimson Mountain's Hunnish horsemen. Myriads of miles, she joined the thick of battle, crossing the mountain passes as if flying. Winds from the north transmitted metal rattles. A freezing light shone on her iron armor. A hundred battles, and the brass were dead. After ten years, the bravest men returned. When they returned, they met the Son of Heaven. The Son of Heaven seated on his throne. Their honorary rank went up twelve steps, and their rewards were counted in the millions. The Khan asked Mulan what he might desire. I, Mulan, do not care for an appointment here at court. Give me your racer good for a thousand miles to take me back again to my old hometown. Hearing their daughter had arrived, her parents went out the city, welcoming her back home. Hearing her eldest sister had arrived. Her sister put on her bright red outfit at the door. Hearing his eldest sister had arrived, her brother sharpened his knife that brightly flashed in front of pigs and sheep. Open the gate to my pavilion on the east. Let me sit down in my old western room. I will take off the dress I wore in battle. I will put on the skirt I used to wear. Close to the window, she did up her hair. Facing the mirror, she applied makeup. She went outside and saw her army buddies. Her army buddies were all flabbergasted. We marched together for these twelve long years and had absolutely no clue that Mulan was a girl. The male hair wildly kicks its feet. The female hair has shifty eyes. But when a pair of hairs run side by side, who can distinguish whether I, in fact, am male or female? Okay, so let's look at this in more detail. The first part of the poem has Mulan doing a classically feminine task, that of weaving, while doing some exposition about the situation at hand. At the end of the section, she makes her decision to take her father's place in the army and to go herself. The bit where she actually fights the invaders is all wrapped up very quickly, and is really done through what she hears rather than what she actually does: the winning of the enemy cavalry, the howl of the wind, the cries of her parents. The last line in the verse states that quote, "the bravest men returned," suggesting that Mulan had in fact taken on the role of a man fighting in the war, and the emperor rewards her as such. She then goes home, is reunited with her parents, takes off her soldier's garb, and puts back on her feminine attire, and returns to her everyday life. Only then do we get the shock of her comrades as they find out they had served alongside a woman. But again, there isn't a sense of outrage or anger, only surprise. The thing ends with a slightly odd extended metaphor involving the hair. The idea here 
is that it's relatively easy to tell male and female hares apart when they're standing still, but when they're in motion, it's quite hard. The inference being that when men and women obscure their appearance by wearing armour or the clothes of the opposite sex, it becomes very difficult to tell them apart. It is a very common trope in war films of all kinds for ordinary people, usually boys and men, to be turned into soldiers by the very act of being given weapons and armour. It is the clothing and equipment that enables that transformation, allowing virtues and abilities already present to come to light. The Poe of Mulan is basically dealing with the thorny issue of a woman fighting by basically saying that the putting on of military gear transformed Mulan into a man. So in other words, a woman had not fought in the war. In effect, it was a male Mulan which makes it so important for the contemporary reader that the poem ends with Mulan resuming her female societal role, once again fulfilling her duties to her family and community. In the last episode, we talked quite a bit about Confucianism and the role of women within it, so I won't go over all ground. But remember, it laid out a very rigid social structure, with women always inferior to men at each tier. What this version of the tale does is ensure that Mulan not only remains in her place, but does so gladly and voluntarily. So she is not only a war hero, but a shining example of filial piety. Let's then move on to the Song of Mulan, which again I will read in full. Shuttle in hand, Mulan heaves a sigh. Who is it for this time, I ask, wanting to know why she sorrows? Deeply moved, she composes her face. My father is listed in the draft's register, but his strength and energy daily wane. How could he journey a myriad miles? He has a son, but the boy is still too young. The steppe sands envelop horses' hooves, northern storms crack a man's skin. My father has grown old and worn by age. How can he survive service? Mulan goes in place of her father, feeds his horse and takes his place in the ranks. She changes away her white silk skirt. She washes away her powdered rouged face. Riding the horse, she reports to the garrison. Filled with noble courage, she wields a sword. Camping at dawn at the foot of snowy mountains, resting at dusk on the bank of the Xingzhai Lake. At night, she surprises the captives at Mount Yangji, and she also captures the Tibetans from Khotan. The victorious commander-in-chief returns, and officers and men can go home. When her father and mother see Mulan, extreme joy turns into sadness and worry. Mulan can understand the expressions on their faces, so she discards turban and gauntlet and then tunes the strings. Before I was a hero amongst warriors, but from now on I'll be your darling girl again. Relatives bring wine and congratulations. Only now do we know that a daughter is as useful as a son. Her old army buddies assembled outside, for ten years shared in her trials. At the outset, they swore in friendship as brothers, an oath never broken even in the death of battle. But when now on this occasion they see Mulan, though the voice is the same, the features are quite different. Stunned and perplexed, they don't dare approach. Heaving heavy sighs, in vain filled with wonder. If in this world the hearts of officials and sons could display the same principled virtue as Mulan's, 
their loyalty and filiality would be unbroken. Their fame would last through the ages. How could it be destroyed? As you can probably tell, this is not significantly different from the previous version, so it is likely that it was highly influenced by the former. The variations come in emphasis rather than content. Milan's motivations remain the same, that of going to war to protect her father, and it ends in the same way, with her resuming the female role through the changing of clothes. Again, the business of battle is taken care of very quickly. One can imagine the scribe just wanting to get it out of the way so you don't have to dwell on the taboo subject of a woman fighting in the army. For me, the most interesting line is this, quote, Only now do we know that a daughter is as useful as a son. Now, taken literally, one might be imagining some proto-feminism here, a cry for the equality of the sexes. But no, of course, that's not what it means. The operative word here is useful. A woman is as important in the social order as a man, they only fulfil different functions. It later goes on to expand on that point, making an argument that we have heard before and will hear again throughout this season, that the extraordinary actions of this woman do not reflect the valour of women, but the weakness of the men around her. And this, of course, is emphasised by the last lines of the piece, that if only more men were like Mulan, then, quote, their loyalty and filiality would be unbroken, their fame would last for the ages, how could it be destroyed? Which frankly goes to show that male chroniclers will do literally anything to make something about a woman to be really something about men. Go figure. Now, at this point, it's worth talking a little bit about the historicity of these tales. The simple truth is that we cannot know for sure whether Mulan was a real person who did the things that these two sources say she did. To me, there are three basic comparisons that we can make, and forgive me for my bias, but they are all British. The first is the Boudicca theory, that maybe some of the things said about her are exaggerated, but she was likely a real person who did the things that they say she did. Second is the Robin Hood theory, that she probably isn't real, but likely instead a composite of characters from a variety of times brought together in one narrative. And third, the King Arthur theory, that she never existed at all, or nor were the deeds described to her, but is instead a barn-burning tale designed to build a national identity. Well, the structure of these stories are of traditional folk tales common in that region of northern China in this period. These were then written down by the Han Chinese, spread around, and then copied into anthologies such as the one that survives to us. This would seem to rule out the Boudicca analogy, but the Robin Hood and King Arthur ones are both still positive. To me, I think she's a composite character of tropes, rather than a composite character of real people. Those are of the dutiful daughter, the female warrior, and the saviour of her people. The next major development in the story of Mulan came in the 16th century, with a pithily named play, The Female Mulan Joins the Army in Place of Her Father, by Zhu Wei, 
who clearly believed in the Ronsfield School of Marketing. For ease, from here on, I'll just call it the female Moulin. This was first published in 1593, as part of a quartet of comic plays called The Four Cries of a Gibbon, all of which play on themes of identity, disguise and recognition. All of the four plays are focused on who a person truly was and how they portray themselves to the outside world. This play, more than the poem and the song mentioned earlier, is the real moment when the story of Mulan became widespread, and it is also here that many of the tropes that we associate with Mulan are born. The first significant thing this did was introduce her family name, Hua, for the first time. This means flower, and is clearly meant to emphasise her femininity. Flowers are of course associated with beauty, frailty and delicateness, classic feminine virtues, which of course is counterpointed by the masculine role she takes on during the play. There is also far more of a focus in the military section of Mulan's story, on her training as a warrior and her efforts to keep her gender a secret. We don't have any records of the play actually being performed, but we can divine quite a bit from the text and the stage directions. It's not a long play, only about 20 pages in length, but it packs quite the punch. The version I have is translated by Shuamin Kwa. Now, unlike the last two versions, I won't be reading it in full, but I will go through some of the significant bits. Despite being very short, it is still divided into two acts. The first focuses on Mulan preparing to go to war. We start with a familiar scene of Mulan coming on stage and telling the story. She explains that her father was too old to fight, her brother too young, while she, quote, followed my father in studying books and martial arts. Now this is my opportunity to repay him. She then gives other examples from Chinese legend of women going to fight, and then resolves to go buy the equipment needed for battle. There is then a highly symbolic scene where she unbinds her feet and places them in military boots. Footbinding is a particularly horrific Chinese custom, thankfully now outlawed, where girls from the age of five have their toes, or sometimes the whole front of the foot, wrapped with binding and then bent underneath the foot, breaking the bones and permanently deforming the feet in order to make them smaller in appearance and more dainty. These were known as lotus feet, and understandably caused Chinese women great pain, severely limited their mobility, and caused them a lot of trouble as they aged. This custom actually came after the setting of Mulan's story, not beginning until the Tang Dynasty in the 7th century. But by including it in this play, Zhu Wei is using it as a metaphor for Mulan's transformation. Quote, How it hurts. It took me several years to bind together those phoenix head sharps. How will I fill up these boots? When I return, I'll still want to get married. So what can I do? Well, no need to mope about that. My family has a method for shrinking golden lotuses. The play then breaks away from most stories of Mulan in that she does not sneak away in the night, she actually gets her parents' blessing and they agree to let her go. Her mother says, weeping, quote, Child, I know well your abilities. You could indeed go. It's just that, how can two old folks like that bear to let you go? Through a thousand provinces and a million miles, you'll be marching with men and keeping their constant company. You cannot prevent your you-know-what from showing. Don't you think this will cause problems? To which Mulan replies, quote, 
Mum, don't worry, I will return home a virgin. This to me is fascinating because at no point is her mother remotely concerned with the possibility that Mulan might die in battle. She is going off to fight ferocious invaders and what her mum is worried about is her chastity. This ties in with what Mulan was saying during her footbinding. Even when going off to war, mother and daughter were most concerned with her marriage prospects after she returned. Her fighting quality is not in question. It's her feminine qualities that are. We then move into Act 2, where Mulan and her army buddies are in search of the lair of the enemy commander, Leopardskin, who is hiding out at Black Mountain's top. She has been appointed to lead the expedition, which is successful, leading her to be assigned to the Emperor's Secretariat, which comes with a fancy ceremonial hat and girdle. She declines this, asking to be allowed to return home to her parents. The rest of the play follows the familiar pattern. She goes home, gets dressed into female dress, and is reunited with her parents. The final innovation of this play is a marriage scene, where she is married off to the neighbour's son, a character whom we had not met before. And finally ends with a soliloquy from Mulan that reflects on the nature of gender and identity. Quote, I was a woman till I was 17, was a man for 12 more years, passed under a thousand glances, which of them could tell cock from hen? Only now do I believe that the distinction between male and female isn't told by the eyes. Who was it that really occupied Black Mountain Top? The girl Mulan went to war for her father. The affairs of the world are all such a mess. Muddling boy and girl is what this play does best. Now this is weirdly transgressive for the time, and shares none of the patriarchal horror present in the previous versions. Mulan was a dutiful Chinese woman, went to war with her parents' blessing, and returned to be a good wife. Very little is made of how strange all this cross-dressing is. Xu Wei seems to be questioning the very nature of gender. Mulan, essentially, creates two identities, that of the dutiful girl and the fearless warrior. Which them are her? Are they both? Are neither? Is the female Mulan responsible for the actions of the male? Does the fact that she lived a lie all those years nullify all the good things that she did? If we are all just playing parts all our lives, then who are we, really? Wow, that is a lot of rhetorical questions that I just threw at you. So I'll give you a moment to have a breather. And, okay, let's move on, shall we? Xu Wei's play was clearly very successful as it spawns numerous more adaptations of the Mulan legend over the next 300 years. Over this period, China was ruled by the Qing, the last imperial dynasty that ran from around 1644 to 1912. The Qing emerged from Manchuria, the northeasternmost region of China, and were not ethnically Han. This made Mulan, another person from the north, ideal as a pin-up for the new regime. Versions of Mulan's story from this period emerge in multiple plays and novels, and the vast majority of them, while inspired certainly by Zhu Wei's play, return to the themes of the original poem and song, that of filial piety, loyalty, and patriotism. However, in these later versions, the latter one, that of patriotism, are more keenly expressed. They drive Mulan to ever greater extremes of experience and emotion. In The Historical Romance of the Sui and the Tang, from 1675, 
Milan is rewarded for her valour with a place in the Emperor's harem. The honourable and chaste Milan, who only desires a simple life with her family, commits suicide rather than submit to such a lecherous post. A later story, the story of the loyal, filial and heroic Milan from the late 18th century, sees supernatural elements added to the story for the first time. Milan is tutored by her grandfather in secret and mystical fighting techniques, which help her when she goes to war, ending with her fighting a demon in the form of a fox spirit who is leading the enemy army. Again, this story leads with Milan's suicide when she refuses to leave her home and go join the emperor's court. Grief-stricken by this, the emperor throws up monuments and showers Milan with titles, emphasising again the notion that only in suicide does Mulan attain immortality. This characterization of suicide as the ultimate act of virtue is pervasive in many cultures, and we will see it again in this series, as we do with Boudicca and the Trung sisters. In terms of plays, we have many expansions of Zhu Wei's play The Female Mulan, many of which choose the somewhat happier ending of Mulan of marriage rather than suicide. We also see a repeating of the notion of the supernatural, but not on Mulan's part. Her power is almost always in her dedication and natural skill, and that is enough to defeat the evil spirits that attack her homeland. In the second half of the 19th century, as Imperial China found itself under constant attack from outside powers and internal foes, Mulan took on even greater significance. Her virtues of loyalty and piety were once short supply in contemporary China, and she was trotted out again and again in an attempt to unite the country. The best example of this came in Mulan Joins the Army, an opera from 1903. Here, Mulan is painted in full patriotic garb, and is fighting not in the Northern Wei period, but in the Han Dynasty's wars against the Mongolian tribesmen in the 2nd century BCE. This war is straightforwardly portrayed as one between good and evil. Mulan in this version joins the army when her cowardly cousin chickens out. So her role here basically is to shame men by demonstrating that even a woman had more bravery than the soft men of contemporary China. She also makes it clear that her loyalty was not to her family or even really to the emperor, but to the nation, to the people of China. This is made explicit by a line Mulan says towards the end of the opera, where she says that she did not, quote, act on behalf of the Son of Heaven. I did not aim for great riches or high status, the ephemeral fortune of the moment, an idle fame that has no value. Instead, she says, it is the responsibility of every Chinese person to, quote, exterminate the barbarians and protect race and kind. This play modernises Mulan somewhat, making her a symbol of the new Chinese woman. Gone are the foot bindings and the faithful filial piety, replaced by a woman on the same level as men fighting for her country. Historian Joan Judge, in her book The Precious Raft of History, describes this change as being, quote, from filiality to fearlessness, from a dutiful daughter's return to an ethnic Han nationalist's heroic struggle against threatening foreign, read Manchu, forces. Judge brings up there the second point that I want to make, which is that this opera marks the moment where Mulan is fully ethnically cleansed, changing from a northerner, sometimes even a Manchurian, into being a Han. 
Remember that the Han were, and still are, the dominant Chinese ethnic group, making up now over 90% of the population. By making her a part of this group, the writer is making her more relatable as a heroine. This was particularly important in the early 20th century, where Manchuria, which previous writers had claimed as Mulan's homeland, was more independently minded and fought over by foreign powers, including Russia and Japan. This patriotic and nationalist Han version dominated the stage and literary representations of Mulan for the next few decades, as China lurched from monarchy to republic, anarchy, civil war, and then finally the war against Japan, which started in the early 1930s and will continue until the Japanese surrendered to the Allies in 1945. During the war, great swathes of China were brutally occupied by Japan, amid fierce resistance by nationalist and communist forces that themselves had been fighting each other up until the Japanese invasion. One of the front lines of the war was the city of Shanghai, which was countered by Japan in 1937. Two years later, Chinese filmmakers released Mulan Joins the Army, a film which, unsurprisingly, took on as its central themes that of occupation, resistance and collaboration. Again, Mulan is seen as an athletic and patriotic warrior woman who chides the lazy and cowardly men who refuse to fight. She also uncovers a traitor who had been passing secrets to the enemy and berates commanders who squabble amongst themselves rather than uniting to meet their common foe. In this film, the notion of masculinity is defined not by gender but by deeds – and so Mulan is portrayed as being far more manly, and therefore far more worthy, than any of the real men in the film. She is put up as the model citizen, the model warrior. Everyone, man or woman, should strive to follow her example. Well, actually it's not quite that progressive. Mulan, at the end of the film, goes back home and gets married, so really, she is more held up as a role model for men than women who were still expected to go home, get married, and raise a family. There are some comedic moments in the film, such as when Mulan, while in disguise as a man, is instructed to dress up as a woman to reconnoitre the enemy, a farcical situation worthy of a Shakespearean comedy. After World War II, of course, China was taken over by the communists, which seems to have led to a bit of a stalling of Mulan's popularity, at least in terms of plays and films. Indeed, the only example of Mulan being used in the first few decades of communist rule that I have found was during the Cultural Revolution, where female Red Guards wearing male clothes were celebrated as the spiritual successors of Mulan. So far then, the legend of Mulan was popular in China and had been for centuries, but little known beyond its borders, especially in the West. This all changed thanks to two works emanating from the United States. The first was The Woman Warrior, a novel written by Chinese-American author Maxine Hong Kingston in 1976, which was a mixing of Chinese folktales and a memoir to explain the immigrant experience in 70s America. In it, she includes a chapter called Fa Mulan, Story of a Female Avenger, which she relates as Mulan telling her own story. Now, this is quite a complicated book, and I know you're just itching for me to move on to Disney, so I will be quick, I promise. Kingston's Mulan is a far richer and more complex character than the dutiful daughter and patriotic heroine characteristics that we have thus far seen. 
Mulan is seen as equally being a warrior of her people, an avenger of injustices perpetrated against her, a wife to her husband fighting in the war, and a slave to a corrupt political system. Vengeance, in particular, is a central theme. She is driven to war after her husband and brother were conscripted by an evil baron, and then, finally, her ailing father was called up. Before she goes in his place, her parents carved into her back a list of grievances that they had against the baron, which is a unique form of parenting, if ever I heard one. Theron, Mulan, does the usual thing, wins battles and acclaim, but then she goes on an Arya Stark-style revenge quest, killing the corrupt emperor and installing a peasant in his place, before finding the baron, bearing her chest to reveal her femininity, and her back, which still held the grievances, before cutting his head off. This is the first true anti-establishment treatment of the story of Mulan, and wholly casts her both as a feminist icon and as an exemplar of the difficulties of being both a woman and an immigrant in a foreign country. Kingston's book was tremendously popular, though not always with the critics, and saw Mulan's story finally become more widely known in the West. Of course, though, this was then turbocharged in 1998, when Disney released the animated film Mulan. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb here and assume that you've seen this film. If not, then pause this podcast right now and go watch it. You won't regret it. This was Disney's first film with a Chinese lead, and followed their winning formula for female heroines that had been established with other princesses like Jasmine, Pocahontas and Belle. Feisty women who knows her own mind, along with a dreamy love interest and cheeky sidekick. Looking through the reviews of the film, around half of them praise it for its relative feminism and transcultural appeal, while the other half slam it for cultural whitewashing and misogynistic pandering. It is clear that while grounded in Chinese legend, this film has been packaged up into a more hybrid product, designed to appeal to an international audience. You can see that in how closely it follows a strict Disney formula of frustrated adolescents disappointed with their lot in life, going off an adventure to discover who they really are, confronting some sort of evil person, before achieving some form of enlightenment of who they are, and usually ends up with them getting married or coupling up with someone. However, Disney's Mulan does break with this in a few ways. Her task is not to find love or discover herself, it is to fight a dangerous foe. And this is somewhat different from other Disney films up to 1998. It also continues the theme of filial piety and somewhat sympathetically portrays Chinese social values. One Chinese review praised it for, unlike other treatments of China in foreign media, quote, Mulan does not demonise China purposefully. Rather, it shows a sincere effort in understanding China. I think the operative word there is effort. Rather, despite itself, the film does slip into stereotypes, with the film having rather more the aesthetic of Chinatown rather than China, one that is more familiar to foreigners with a rudimentary knowledge of Chinese culture at best. This has meant that this film, while immensely popular in the West, was not well loved in the East, with Chinese filmgoers seeing it as rather more pastiche than epic. Outside of the questions of aesthetic, the film is relatively faithful to the traditional Mulan narrative. She takes up arms to protect her ageing father, fights a Mongolian-style invader, saves the emperor, and then chooses to return home rather than accept riches. 
The chief way that this film develops, or some might say bastardizes, the story of Mulan is in the infusing of Western values. The matchmaker, for example, is seen as clumsy and stupid. Mulan cuts her hair rather than tying it up, which would have been seen as grossly offensive in China at that time. Her motivations to fight are as much about sticking it to the man as about protecting her father, while traditional views of the legend see it as more of a gesture of submission. Put simply, she is proving her worth rather than fighting for her family. Now, I'm not saying that that's necessarily a bad thing. All stories of myth and legend evolve over time. But by appropriating a legendary figure from another culture and infusing her with foreign values, it does muddy the water somewhat. In 2009, China made its own blockbuster version of the Mulan story, called in English, Mulan, Rise of a Warrior. This version owes far more to the earlier Chinese operas and films to the later American version, blending traditional family values with patriotism. In this, Mulan's patriotism has a distinctly communist flavour, where the needs and desires of the individual are subservient to the greater good of the people. This is exemplified in the treatment of Mulan's love interest. He is one of her comrades in war, but the terms of the peace treaty dictated that he must marry a Raoran princess. He then runs away to Mulan, but she forces him to go back to his fiancée, the needs of the many must always outweigh her own desires. China must prevail at all costs. Which brings us to the 2020 live-action Disney remake. This film is a kind of a blending of the original Disney version with the 2009 Chinese version to make a kind of grey lump that isn't very much of anything at all. Obviously there hasn't been any real scholarship of it at the time of recording, so you're relying very much on my own opinion and intelligence here. But what this film does that really irritates me is remove Mulan's own agency. In pretty much every version of the story that I have thus far related, Mulan is treated as a fairly ordinary girl. Her fighting abilities and skill in leading men into battle are learned and earned through hard work and discipline. It is her very ordinariness that makes her actions extraordinary and an example to everyone around her. This latest film, however, is focused on Mulan's chi, a kind of mystical force that gives one supernatural ability that she is born with and must learn to master to become a great warrior. Therefore, this Mulan is more Luke Skywalker than Rocky Balboa, someone born to greatness rather than someone who achieves it through hard graft. The film, though, does have some decent feminist credentials, for example, men in the film are encouraged to find their chi, while women who do so are banished as witches. And the love interest, unlike in the animated version, is her comrade rather than her commanding officer, making their relationship one more of equals. As one reviewer put it, it is a film very much of a Me Too era. And so, once again, Mulan has moved with the times. No doubt, in years to come, we will continue to see new Mulans presented to us, as time moves inexorably on.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.